University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. One of my favorite things about being a part of this church over the last three years have been our gatherings. We have one coming up, by the way, on June 12th, summer gathering, but my first fall gathering here in October 2019 involved an incredible display of hospitality to our neighbors, fun times together watching children play silly games. I think a chili cook-off, if my memory serves me correctly that year, and, of course, our trunk or treat. But my favorite part of that day was seeing a new side of Don Garland, which I hadn't seen before. Many of you will remember Don and Nancy's costumes over the years, maybe from that year in particular. And for those who weren't there, Don walked around the parking lot of our gathering offering hippie blessings of peace and asking if anyone had seen his 8-track tape. And while my first three months here at this church were wonderful, it was in that moment that I knew I was in the right church. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word peace. Perhaps you think of Don's costume. Or maybe in a more serious way, our gatherings and the fellowship that we share together the peaceful presence of one another. Maybe your mind goes to an absence of war or conflict. Maybe you think of a stillness inside of you in the midst of trying times. Our text today deals with peace, among other things, but if we got into all of what Jesus says in this passage, you would miss lunch. No one wants that. So we're going to focus our attention today. I invite you to hear these words of scripture from the Gospel of John. Now the context is Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to leave them, knowing that his ministry of radical love is leading him to his death. And John chapters 14 through 17 are known as the farewell discourse where Jesus offers some final words of encouragement and teaching to these young men before he departs. Chapters, chapter 14, verses 23 through 27 say this. Jesus answered, Whoever loves me will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. The word that you hear isn't mine, it's the word of the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I am with you. The companion, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I give to you not as the world gives. Don't be troubled or afraid. 
Now, there might be at least a couple questions that arise from this passage. One, who is the world that Jesus refers to? And what in the world does Jesus mean by peace? Our world is full of anxiety, especially these days. I think we're all after some sense of peace, a calming of the storm, so to speak. Take something as simple as the Calm app that many of you may have on your phones. A wonderful app, by the way, that I'm just personally too cheap to pay for. But this app provides brief reflections, usually set to ambient music or some soothing visuals of nature, intended to lull the listener to sleep or into stillness. They offer breathing exercises, mindfulness meditation practices, and their claim is that 84% of people who use the app five times a week experience improved mental health. I don't doubt it, actually. There's some pretty good science to back up what they're claiming, especially as it regards mindfulness meditation. But the fact that Calm has over 4 million paid subscribers and is valued at over $2 billion I think it shows us that there is a real market for peace. And while things like calm are great and helpful, is this what Jesus is talking about? Simply a temporary alleviation of our inner anxiety or fear? Symptom management? Or is there something deeper, something more significant, more world-changing even, that Jesus is getting at? You may have heard the following lyrics. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You're probably familiar with that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. These words were written by Horatio Spafford in 1873, after some pretty difficult times in his life. If you ever thought that you had had a bad year, Spafford might give you a run for your money. He began in 1871 with the death of his four-year-old son, and then almost immediately following the Great Chicago Fire, which ruined him financially as he had invested in many properties where the fire had occurred. There was then an economic downturn in 1873, which made things even more challenging for him. And he then decided that he would travel to England with his family for some work with a colleague of his. In a last-minute change of plans, though, he decided to send his family on ahead of him. He would come later while he was sorting out some business related to the fire. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean... The ship that his family was on sank rapidly after a collision with another vessel, and all four of his daughters died. His wife Anna survived and sent him a now-famous telegram saying, Saved alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to England, he was inspired to write the words of that hymn as his ship passed near where his daughters had died. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, or when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, whatever my lot 
Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's almost offensive. What in the world would possess someone to write these words of hope and comfort after such an awful tragedy? How? Where does that come from within Horatio Spafford? To be able to look at immense sorrow and yet find incredible peace. You may have heard, by the way, that the ancient Hebrew word that means peace is shalom. It's similar to the Greek word in our passage today, irene. And really what both of these words mean is wholeness. Not simply a still or calm mind or a peaceful, easy feeling, but something deeper, something that it seems Horatio Spafford had experienced. It's as if the Spirit of God undergirds his life, pulling all the disjointed and chaotic pieces together into something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Now, I wrestled this week with how to talk about this idea, how to explain it, perhaps. And I reached the conclusion that I'm not sure it can be explained, not rationally, anyway. It doesn't make rational sense to say it is well with my soul during great tragedy. But if you've experienced this in your life, if you've seen how God can move in the world and in your life in ways that don't make rational sense, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then I think you just get it. It's a little bit like those visual illusions that you've probably seen, which once you see them a certain way, you can't really unsee them. Take this one, for instance. Do you see a rat? Or do you see the profile of a man's face? Now, psychologists have studied these kinds of illusions, this sort of phenomenon, and apparently they rewire our brains. It really is the case that once you see an image like this in a certain way, you can't unsee it. And every time you look at this image, from now on, you'll be able to see the other image that you once couldn't see. It's a little silly as an analogy, but I think this deep peace this way of perceiving our lives, of perceiving a loving God's involvement in them is really similar. Once you've caught this vision of what Jesus is saying, you can't uncatch it. You can't unsee it. It's everywhere. And it becomes the truest thing that you know. And this matters. Not just because it gives us more enjoyable or fulfilling lives, or because it helps us just get through the day. It matters because peaceful spirits make a peaceful world. It's not that your personal inner peace doesn't matter, it's just that it matters for more than simply yourself. As baptized believers in the, this way of Jesus, we say that we have been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. 
This means we allow certain parts of ourselves to die. Our ways of selfishness and violence and competition. And we trust that God is giving us a new way of being and living in the world. A new way of seeing the world. A way of selflessness and service to others. Of peacefulness rather than violence. Of cooperation rather than competition. And these are not easy things to do in a world blinded by and to its own violence and hell-bent on destroying itself. But it's what we sign up for. Did you know that when you were baptized or when you joined this church or any other, you were signing up for kind of a rebellion of sorts? A rebellion against the ways of the world, so to speak? To grasp this, though, requires going back a couple chapters for a second in the Gospel of John to something Jesus might have been referring to when he offered his disciples peace. Two chapters before our text today is the story of what we call Palm Sunday. Jesus had been making his way to Jerusalem, and he's finally arrived there. He rides into the city on the back of a donkey, a symbol for peace, by the way, if you've read the book of Zechariah, to a crowd waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, save us, they say. Save from what, we might ask? Well, on the other side of the city, riding into the city opposed to Jesus, was the emperor on the back of a mighty horse with chariots and legions of soldiers surrounding him. We might think of this a little bit like those displays you've probably seen from Places like North Korea, where the supreme leader rides on top of a tank surrounded by missiles and battalions of soldiers. It's a display of power, as if to say, we're in charge and you better stay in line. And this is what historians refer to as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, a period of, I think it was about 200 years of relative calm and tranquility in the ancient world, so they say. In order to keep this calm, though, they imprisoned, tortured, and murdered those who disagreed with him. So as Caesar rides in on one side of the city, Jesus rides into the other on the back of a donkey, peacefully. And these palm branches? About 150 years before Jesus, there was a Jewish revolt against the empire known as the Maccabean Revolt a violent uprising against the empire, and to celebrate their victory, they waved palm branches. These people were expecting Jesus to lead a military revolt. But he's not interested in this at all. He offers his own protest of sorts by riding in peacefully, without weapons, and proceeds to teach his disciples final lessons of love and sacrifice, and true peace. My peace I give you, not as the world on the other side of the city gives. This is the sort of rebellion that Jesus calls his disciples into. A rebellion not in meeting violence with more of the same, but encountering violence with something better, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I'd argue that violence cannot drive out violence. 
Only peace can do that. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road for us, I think, in terms of how this peace, this shalom that we experience in our lives gets turned into calling and action in the world. Peace is not the same as an absence of conflict, which is simply the alleviation of a collective symptom, but doesn't really solve the root of the problem. A world full of nuclear weapons as a deterrent is not peace, but simply terror kept at bay. I don't want to be naive here. Stockpiling nuclear weapons and building militaries may very well be a practical solution in the moment to keep destruction at bay, but I'll be damned if we equate that with Jesus' vision of peace. That is not Jesus' peace. And what a shame it would be if that were the best we could envision for ourselves. There is something so much better, so much deeper and wider and fuller than this. Peace, in the biblical sense, and as John writes about it in our passage, is an erene, a shalom, a deep and abiding wholeness and fulfillment. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I give to you not as the world gives. Don't be troubled or afraid. Jesus' final note there might be a good one to end on this morning. As Frank Herbert wrote in his classic novel, Dune, I'm looking at Bill and Sherry with shoes in right now, fear is the mind killer. So much of this so-called peace that we see in the world around us is driven by a fear of something, whether harm or destruction or insignificance. Maybe it's the same for each of us, too, for our lives, that our desperate attempts at a superficial peace are driven by anxiety and fear, fear of isolation or loneliness, fear of pain or struggle. Jesus says, there is nothing to be afraid of. We sang it earlier. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river in my soul. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river in my soul. Truly peaceful spirits make a peaceful world. May you encounter the deep, abiding peace of God, even in the midst of a chaotic world. May you know that there is a better way. And may that peace that you experience be so abundant that it spills over into the world around you.